Good morning, everyone. Good to have you here this morning. I invite you to stand with me again as we read the Word of God. We'll do as we did last time, Lord willing. I'm saying, I may praise the Lord, not Lord Yes, Lord willing, this time as well. I will read verses 1 through 4 of the epistle of Jude. And then those in the balcony would read verses 5 through 7. Those on the left aisle, my left, verses 8 through 13. Those in the center, verses 14 through 16. Those on the right, verses 17 through 23. And then we read the final two verses together. Hear then the word of God. Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Beautiful words. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Balcony. Stars 
for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Center verses 14 through 16. It was also among these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation of Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord of Canaan and the thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners Right, seventeen through people said, Amen. Amen. The word of God to us today. Time for examination. How many of you have read Jude through more than twice this week? Hey, very good. Thank you. How many of you didn't read it at all? Nobody raised their hands. All right. The task of the church in the midst of apostasy. This is our third message in our series on this epistle to Jude, which we have entitled, The Task of the Church in the Midst of Apostasy. Last week, we saw that Jude was constrained or moved upon, carried along by the Holy Spirit to write this vitally important letter to the people of God. He had set out to do something entirely different. He wanted to write about the salvation that we commonly enjoy. But instead, the Spirit of God moved upon him to write about the salvation of the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. This is therefore a very important message to us as the people of God, even today. It is something that the scriptures are very clear to point out that it was specifically done through the moving of the Spirit of God upon Jude. And so this is a message that the triune God 
wanted his people to know. I believe that is true today as well. Jude, as I said, intended to write a theology of the salvation of the believer. But because this was such a pressing problem at his, during his time, he moved upon Jude to write differently. He says that the true believers must ardently, aggressively, and earnestly contend against the attacks of the faith by those who are seeking to destroy it. He's telling us today that we must not allow ourselves to be so absorbed by the mores and the philosophies of a godless society and our culture and simply excuse such behavior, activity on the part of men who claim to be anointed of God, who claim to be messengers of God, but yet they are really attacking and destroying the integrity of the gospel, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He's saying that we must not just sit idly by and let it happen. We must contend against it. Even if such teachings come from professed Bible teachers or other men of the cloth. In fact, he's telling us here, that's exactly the people who will be promoting the kind of doctrine that tear down the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. This was the burden not only on the heart of Jude, but on the heart of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I should say it the other way. This was not really a burden on the heart of Jude, but it was a burden on the heart of the Holy Spirit. Now look at the text carefully. When it says that we must contend earnestly for the faith, we must understand what the faith is. The faith is not just something to which we give mental or intellectual consent to. It's not just a body of doctrine, although it is that. But it is a body of doctrine that leads to a way of life. And you cannot separate the two. It's a way of life to which we commit ourselves. It is a spiritual culture that both transcends and even confronts the culture of a fallen world. Jude is saying, believers must contend for that faith by living righteously and resisting those who live unrighteously while preaching righteousness. Here is the major emphasis then that Jude is making. He is teaching that spiritual ruin especially in the area of morality, automatically follows the corruption of biblical truth. Let me repeat that because that's a principle that is being emphasized by Jude. <coughs> Spiritual ruin 
automatically follows the corruption of biblical truth. Put another way in the context of Jude. Immorality automatically follows the corruption of true doctrine. Jude is also saying that if we are going to be able to guard ourselves from those who teach and practice such ungodly behavior, we must know their characteristics. We must know what these teachers are like. His words in this epistle, therefore, provide a standard by which we can objectively judge or evaluate professed ministers of the gospel who claim to preach in the name of Christ. Jude gives us a standard, a measuring rod, a cannon, if you want, to determine whether a person is proclaiming the true gospel or not. He gives us ways to determine, to detect who is true and who is false when it comes to proclaiming the word of God. How does he do this? Well, if you've read it, and I trust that you will again, you will see he does it by bringing in examples of individuals who have done things contrary to the command of God and the judgment that automatically follows. He ties the two together. You cannot separate disobedience to God and the judgment of God. One follows the other automatically. So he gives us some examples to illustrate the principle that moral corruption automatically follows the corruption of biblical truth. And I'm going to repeat it again and again. Moral corruption automatically follows the corruption of biblical truth. He does this in verses 5 through 11. And in so doing, as he does it, he gives us a brief history lesson of the Jewish people. In fact, he uses history as our teacher. And you're going to see some tremendous principles for teaching demonstrated, exhibited by Jude in this passage. He's a great Bible teacher. He uses illustrations, not made up, manufactured illustrations, but illustrations First of all, from history. And he begins with the example of the Hebrew or the Jewish people in verse 5. Notice what he says. Hear the word of God. Though you already know all this, isn't that amazing? He's going to write about something they already know about. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. 
Job begins as a teacher to first give a what we would call a summary statement. We did that, we learned that in composition in grade two. A summary statement. Notice what he says. I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people. That's grace. But later destroyed those who did not believe. That's divine judgment. Divine grace always precedes divine judgment. Always. Jude is a good teacher. He's using a method of review and application. Most of the apostles actually use this method of teaching. For instance, Peter used it when he said, I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Remember that? That's what Jude is doing. Although you know all of this, I want to remind you. Peter said, I want to stir up, stir up, agitate, put in motion, get you off the dime. I want to stir up, I want to put you in gear. What's the word in the Kfaska when you're ready to go? You don't know? Rev. There you go. I want to rev you up. I want to get you ready to go. I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. John used the same principle when he said, Remember the things from which you have fallen. That was the first step in restoring lost love. Remember. I am convinced that one of the greatest tragedies for the people of God today is the forgetfulness of biblical truth. You don't remember. God's people today seem to forget what they've been taught or know concerning the word of God immediately after they hear it. So the big question is, did they really hear? You see, you can hear without hearing. You can listen without hearing. Do you know, do you realize that? That's the reason why the word of God, I believe, is not applied when we leave a meeting like this, we leave our Sunday school class, or when we leave our Bible study. Why isn't it applied? Because we forget it. James speaks specifically about this also in his epistle. Listen to what he says. Anyone who listens to the word but not, does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself goes away and immediately forget what he looks like. Notice the word? Immediately. Immediately. But the man who looks in Intently, study to show yourself approved unto God. The King James says, Digen, diligently show your, uh, study the word. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Notice what James does. He equates with remembering 
with doing. Notice what he says. And continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard. Continuing to do it. He will be blessed. So those of you who come out on Sunday morning or go to Sunday school class or your Bible class thinking that, hey, I'm blessed because I attended, not according to this verse. You only bless if you do what you've learned. That's the word of God, isn't it? I repeat, James is saying that we are not blessed, not because we do not know God's word, but rather because we do not apply or obey what we do know of his word. Paul emphasizes the same truth that Jude is making here concerning applying the spiritual lessons we have learned from the history of the Jewish people. Listen to the word of, again, word of God again, this time from 1 Corinthians 10. Please turn in your Bibles as I read. You can follow along verses 1 through 12. You see how the apostle uses history. The history of God's people. This gives us some idea of what the New Testament is all about for us today. Why it is important for us to know it. Not just to know the names of the different patriarchs. Not just enough to know the names of the Bible books, but what is being taught, the truth. Listen to what he says. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact. Now the word ignorant here means to be unaware of. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud. That phrase, under the cloud, meant the cloud that led the people of Israel out. So he's talking about being under the direction of God. That our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized or identified into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, they all experienced the same thing, the leading of God, the protection of God. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. Now listen to it. And that rock was Christ. The anointed. That rock was Christ. That rock that we read about in the Old Testament that gave the water that Moses struck was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them in spite of all of these experiences. Wonderful experiences with a powerful God. God was not pleased with a few of them. See, you are not looking at the Bible. God was not pleased with most of them. You see that? God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now notice how Paul applies these historical facts. Now, these things occurred as examples. Do you see the sovereignty of God? Why he has selected certain things in the history of Israel to reveal to us? God is behind it. These things occurred as examples. So what happened there in the Old Testament, especially in the people of Israel, was for us. 
for us. These things occurred as examples. Why? To keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. That's why you read about these stories. To keep us from doing evil things, the same evil things they did. Do not be idolatrous, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by the snakes. See what Paul is doing? Disobedience to God without repentance leads to judgment automatically. And regardless of who they are, Verse 10, and do not grumble, as some of them did. Now, you say grumbling is not a big thing to God? Oh, yeah. Notice. Do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. For grumbling. Huh. Do we have any grumblers here? Notice now, verse 11. Here is the application. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as a warning for them. For us. Do you see that? Written down. That's what we have, the inspired word of God. You want to know why we have the stories of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they were written down as a warning for us on whom the fulfillment of the age has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's the word of God. The children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt by the mighty power of God. He delivered them and brought them out of slavery so that they might be free to serve and worship him. They experienced his power to deliver, his power to provide, and his power to protect. But then they got into grumbling. When they got into the wilderness, things became a little difficult. And suddenly, they forgot everything about the great and powerful God who did so many great and powerful things and wanted to redeem them. They just forgot because things got a little tough. They began to murmur and to complain. That's the beginning of facing the judgment of God if you don't repent. The murmuring, the complaining. They questioned everything God did or did not do. They rebelled against God, and in so doing, Jude says, they demonstrated their unbelief and lack of faith in God, even though they witnessed his great power in the past. Notice what he is doing. Disobedience is equated with unbelief. When you don't obey, 
you're saying to God, I do not believe you. I don't care how much you say you believe the Bible. If you disobey God, you're saying, I do not believe you. Look at the word. They demonstrated their unbelief and lack of faith in God through their disobedience. They neglected to act on the truth, the truth they knew about God. And as a result, they fell into immorality. And a result of that, God visited them in judgment. Now, he's not speaking about sending anyone to hell here. That comes later. He's talking about judgment on earth while these people lived. That eventually led to death. But he's talking about experiencing his hand upon them. That's why the writer to the Hebrews in speaking to believers says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He wasn't speaking to unsaved people. He was speaking to Christians who didn't believe. Because they disobeyed his word. It has to do with the consequences of sin and disobedience in this life, not the life to come. And so the scriptures say that because of their unbelieving behavior, their carcasses fell in the wilderness. They fell short of the glory of God, as it were, by entering into the promised land. Only those who are under the age of 20 actually entered the promised land. Then Paul, like Jude, makes the application. Notice what he says in verse 11. Paul, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying here, don't think now that just because you know the word, you're okay. Just because you attended teleos, you're right. Because you know how to study now. You've got to know that, mind you. But that's not sufficient. You've got to obey what the word of God says. You've got to live out the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That is Jude's point. What happened to the children of Israel teaches us this truth. Remember now, remember. Paul and Jude is saying, learn from their past history how you are to live today. How are we to live today? By obeying the word of God. That's it. So how do we know whether or not you believe God? By looking at your life. By looking at your life. That's what Jude is getting at. Don't just listen to what teachers are saying. See how they are living. See what they're doing. They just have a big thing going on in the States now concerning a TV evangelist who just came off a big radio program trying to get money to help the poor. And he's building, I think it's an $11 million home 
11 million dollar home just in the process but he comes on his program asking for money planting a seed in his ministry to help the poor but boy you listen to him preach he's got a powerful message but look at the way he lives Jude says that's how you examine who's really defending the faith or who's tearing it down See, we don't think along those lines. We only look, oh boy, that sounds good. He must be orthodox. Jude is telling us, you don't just look at what he says, but how the person lives. And so the point Jude is making is that godless men do secretly sneak into the local church. And in fact, such activity will be common in the last days. Jude is saying, it is important for us to know how to identify them. You see, usually we get the impression, when we talk about the last days, for instance, that referring to some time is not here yet. The last days began with the coming of Christ, especially his ascension. And been going on ever since. That's the last days. You see, Jude was not writing about something that would only happen in a time far distant from his own time. He was writing about events that were in fact happening in his time. That's why the Spirit of God moved him to write about this so he would recognize that afresh. In other words, Jude is saying that these godless men have been active in the church from its very inception. So does Paul. They are active, my friends, today as well. But I believe they are here more so than ever before, even than in the time of Jude's day. That's why I believe that Jude's message and warning is so relevant, so vital and urgent for us at this time. As Jude uses history, specifically that of God's dealing with Israel, he does it to teach us that we should not neglect or corrupt biblical truth by boasting that we know the scriptures, but yet we live like pagans. And so the truth is not only a body of doctrine. The truth has to do with a body of doctrine that is manifested in a person's life. Jude says, most certainly are we not to accept such behavior from those who preach the word. To preach one way but live another. Jude defines that as denying the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You need to understand that. It's not just what is said. It is how the person who says it, who lives, who really, to really define if he is in fact holding up the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's an important truth to be reminded of. And he uses history to tell us that if you don't live what you believe, God's going to judge you. That's the first example. But then he gives a second one in verse 6. 
And this second example Jude gives of those who corrupt or deny the truth by the way they live are the fallen angels. Notice what he says, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change, chains for judgment on the great day. And so now Jude takes us from earth to heaven and then back to earth. He takes us from man to angels because they are also examples to us as, not, as to how we should not abandon or corrupt the word and will of God. He says that these angels, notice now, did not keep their position of authority. That means they had a position of authority. God was good to them. God gave them a privileged position. But they did not keep it. They abandoned. This is a strong, this didn't happen by accident. They didn't just drift away from this. This was a chosen action on their part. They abandoned it. They abandoned their own home where they belonged. They abandoned the place where God put them. They rebelled against the authority of God by intruding into a realm that was, not, that was foreign to them or off bounds to them as far as their authority was concerned. They went beyond their boundaries. Notice now, they had been given authority by God. But it wasn't all authority. You could only go to a certain place. But they went beyond. We have a lot of people do that today. Give them places of position and privilege, it becomes a license. They refuse to obey his will to stay in an assigned location, to do an assigned job, and to complete that job. They overstep their bounds and their authority. And because of this, God is now keeping them in darkness, bound by eternal bonds, awaiting the great day of final judgment. That day when the devil and all of his angels will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death, and which was prepared especially for them. They're not there yet. But they kept in a dark prison until then. Jude says that did judgment. Now here is it now. This is the word of God. Jude says that their judgment is a guarantee that judgment will be experienced by those who transgress the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, the will of God in this case. They are an example of what happens to those who willfully choose to deny the faith. Now, their kind of judgment may differ from the ones that come upon false teachings, but what God is emphasizing here is that judgment is certain, the disobedience to his word, or denying the faith. That's the principle. It is certain. It is certain. 
See, Jude is expressing a truth that we as God's people seem to have forgotten. What is it? God, the God of love and the God of grace, judges those who disobey his word and do not repent. We've forgotten that. God is my friend. God is my pal. He loves me too much to judge me. You see, that shows an ignorance of the holiness and justice of God. Jude is trying to demonstrate to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, that God's judgment automatically, naturally, follows disobedience to his word. Or disrespect or disregard for his word if it isn't corrected. Because where sin abounds, grace always abounds much more. And so the point being made, I say again, is that God judges sin, especially willful sin, no matter who commits that sin, man or angel. So just because someone says he or she is a preacher and believes the Bible, but yet denies that Bible by the way they live, their profession will not protect them from the judgment of God. In fact, it automatically demands that it happens. That's why... That's why James says, let not all of you seek to be teachers, brethren. Why? Because your judgment is greater. Your judgment is greater. This is a strong statement Jude is making. He's emphasizing the value God places not only upon his word, but also upon our living his word out. They go together, according to Jude. We most certainly lie against the truth if we do not live what we preach or say we believe. We lie against the truth. But Jude is saying, that we also lie against the truth when we do not resist, when we do not oppose, or we do not contend against those who claim to be teachers of God's word, but yet live ungodly and unrighteous lives. If we don't oppose that, Jude says, we are not earnestly defending the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. That's Jude's concern. It should be ours also. Too many times we as preachers prepare messages only for ourselves, or rather, not for ourselves, only for others. Jude is preaching God's people about preachers. Godless preachers. That's why I don't hear too many messages today about Jude. He's preaching about preachers. 
what they are by nature and what they do in practice. He wants the people of God to know all they can about them. Why? So we can uphold the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints by actively and aggressively contending against all such godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and denied Jesus Christ our only Savior and Lord. That's what Jude is doing. Trying to stir us up to get us out of our state of passiveness. And just say, well, that's funny. You listen to them, you support them. And what are you doing? You are denying the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And God says judgment is going to come. Now in verse 7, I'll just introduce this, we'll stop this and continue this evening. He ties in another judgment as an illustration. He uses the judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah as another illustration of the truth that immediately follows the corruption of truth. That immorality, rather, follows the corruption of truth. This is what verse 7 says. In a similar way, notice the connection. In the same way the angels did what they did by crossing the boundaries, going someplace where they were not supposed to go. In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Right away, if you follow the scriptures, you have an explanation of what this sin is or was. It has to do with the same kind of sin that the angels did. And it began with going to places they shouldn't go. They serve as an example. Notice that again. Of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now he's using this to give us a true example of those who will be separated from God forever. This isn't just a judgment now that has to do with what happens on this earth, but what happens to the person after they leave this earth. And so this passage does not only tell us something about the kind of sins the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of, but they also tells us the kind of sins the fallen angels were guilty of as well. Notice the phrase in a similar way, just as, in the same manner. In other words, the sins of the fallen angels were of similar nature to those of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding towns. It wasn't only Sodom and Gomorrah, but all the other towns around them as well. What kind of sins were they? They were sins of sexual immorality and perversion. That's what the text says. Sexual immorality and perversion. That is saying that the angels committed the same kind of sins. In a similar way. Notice now, they gave themselves up to these activities. 
We like to encourage young people, believers, to give yourselves over to God, to Jesus Christ, to serve him. That's what these people did only thing. They gave themselves over to sexual immorality. They committed or dedicated themselves to perverse and immoral, immoral lifestyles. The King James Version says they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Notice that? Now, tie that in with the verse. They went after strange flesh. They went into a territory they were not supposed to go. Now the term gross immorality is an intensified form of, the, of a normal Greek word for sexual immorality. Now, I won't give you all the words here, but it has to do, the different words it has to do with porneia, sexual immorality, adultery, prostitution. These words have different levels of intensity. This word here, gross immorality, is a strong, intense word describing the worst kind, the highest degree of immorality. Jude uses the word ekponeo. Now remember we get the word porneo from this word. But you get ekponeo. It means that it's something out of the ordinary. That's why the King James translated gross immorality. Gross immorality. Now, what type of nature of sin is Jude alluding to here? The next term helps us to give the answer. King James says, and they went after strange flesh. That is, it's flesh of another kind. Flesh of another kind. The NIV translated perversion. Now, what kind of sin is this? The biblical record is given in Genesis chapter 19. And it's very explicit. This chapter describes the almost frenzied attempts of the male population of Sodom to have sexual relationships with two angels who had taken the form of men. Notice now angels again. And the male population, according to the text, the entire town, male population went after these men. Notice verse 5 of that chapter in Genesis 19. It says, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Some modern-day people like to say this was a sign of, this was an indication of a little gang rape. No way. All, according to the scripture, young and old males surrounded the house. The city was a city of those we now call homosexuals. God calls their activity gross immorality, going after strange flesh. Flesh, in this case, of the same gender. 
for another male to go after a male sexually is to go after strange flesh. This city had become now the name for this terrible unnatural act. We call it sodomy. Now, lest we get caught up now in the emotional disgust of what is being discussed here in the Word of God, let us remember that Jude is saying that the perverseness of the men of Sodom was similar to that of the fallen angels, and that the perversions of both serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. That's the reason why Jude is giving these examples. In other words, if God judged the immorality of the man of Sodom and the fallen angels because of the corruption of truth falling away from him, we can be sure that he will do the same today. It hasn't changed. The message is aimed specifically at those who deliberately and consciously turn away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints, either in their teachings or their lifestyle. And what Jude is saying, if we stand by with our mouths shut and do nothing, we ourselves are not contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we can be guilty of judgment as well. Different in degree when it comes to judgment, but judgment nonetheless. I want to stir up your pure minds to live godly lives and a part of that is what contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints now it is not my purpose at this time to deal with all the pros and cons surrounding the identity and the nature of the fallen angels and the sin but even at the risk of leaving much unsaid and unanswered about this I must make some reference to the matter if I am going to do justice to the passage at all in other words, I have to go where the passage leads me. But bear in mind that Jude is reminding his readers of events that they are familiar with. Events that they have already known. The activity of the Sodomites is recorded in detail in Genesis 19. But there are at least two dozen references of their sin and God's judgment upon the city in the Bible. But is there anywhere in Scripture where the activity of the fallen angels are described. We have a clear description of what the Sodomites did. But do we have any description anywhere in the Bible about what the angels did? I believe we do. And that's the passage we will look at tonight. At 6.30 p.m. And we will do so. To show you that God is using these examples of certain judgment upon those who turn away from the truth and go beyond their boundaries to remind us that we could do the same thing of not defending the faith by being passive and not doing anything. Be careful then, he says, you think you stand? Take heed. 
because of you not actively and aggressively contending for the faith that opposing such lifestyles and teachings, you're guilty. I'm guilty of not contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. God talks about judgment, but my friends, I must remind you before we go that God always speaks about grace before he talks about judgment. And if you are here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as Savior, the Bible is clear. There is judgment ahead for you that leads to eternal separation from God. But that hasn't happened yet. You say, how do I know? Because you're here. And God's grace is extended to you right now. Acknowledge that you've disobeyed God, that you're a sinner. Acknowledge that because of your sin, you deserve separation from him. But because of God's grace, he sent his son to bear the penalty for your sin. He took your place on Calvary's cross. And God raised him from the dead to validate the fact that he accepted Christ's death on your behalf. And God's grace right now is saying to you, all you have to do is to say to the Father, I trust, I place my confidence in Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection for me as the basis for my salvation. You do that and you pass out of death, free from condemnation, and translated into his glorious kingdom of light and glory. Bow with me in a word of prayer. So I ask you right now to do that. Wherever you may be. You don't have to raise a hand to me. You don't have to walk down an aisle. This issue is between you and God, not between you and man or the preacher. All you have to do today, acknowledge your need for Christ. That simply means you acknowledge that you're a sinner. You can do nothing to save yourself. But you believe that Christ came to save you through his death and resurrection. And just let him know today that you were trusting him and him alone as the basis for your salvation. Father, thank you for your word. Grant now that someone here might have the glorious experience of being passed out of death into life from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Grant our Father that someone today will become a child of God through faith in Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen.